Shalom. I'm reading from Isaiah 66, verses 6 through 14. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breast. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. Thank you, Linda. I want to pause for a minute and um, ask the Lord's blessing. So would you join with me? Lord, um, your word is awesome. And uh, it is alive and actively powerful. And uh, we stand in your presence very much aware that you are able to speak to each one of us. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you transcend all the limitations, all the weaknesses. And uh, Lord, we simply pray that you would do that. Lord, that you would speak to us, that you give us hearts that are receptive to hear lishmoa, and to do. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Around the subject of Israel, uh, as you well know, there's all kinds of controversy. And um, those of us who are supporters, advocates, for Israel have to be able to listen to various points of view and where we disagree um, we want to pray and ask for the Lord's chesed not to come and strangle folks I'm sure nobody here has that temptation uh, but uh, in March uh, I was at uh, a conference, uh, so was uh, Elaine Dallaire, 
uh, Lausanne Consultation of Jewish Evangelism, and we had a, a fellow come who represents the pro-Palestinian. Um, and by the way, we don't have a problem with folks who are pro-Palestinian as long as they're not anti-Israel. Because we are pro-Israel, we're not anti-Palestinian. Do you understand the difference? Because our God is greater than all of that. And we want to have his perspective. But in any event, this fellow uh, declared the fact that he is not replacement theologian. In other words, he doesn't believe that God is finished with Israel. Um, and if you've been around like I have, you know that you, you've heard this old shtick. I'm sorry to say, I know that's not exceedingly gracious, but folks will often say something like, I, I, I don't believe that God is finished with Israel. I'm not replacement theology. God has a plan for Israel. At some point in the future, I have no clue what it looks like, and frankly, I'm not interested. Um, and furthermore, I believe that um, people who are supportive of Israel are doing so inappropriately because Israel is a secular and a godless state. Therefore, it cannot be a fulfillment of prophecy. Because the prophets speak about God bringing Israel back to the land in righteousness. And you may be aware of the fact that this point of view is gaining a lot of traction um, in the evangelical community among fellow believers. So the question obviously is, are they right? Are they not right? Um, if they're not right, how do we interact and respond to folks who have that perspective? And obviously each one of us has an opinion. And we are convinced that our opinion is a correct one and everybody else's opinion is wrong, of course, right? Um, and we can say that until we're blue in the face unless we are able to make some sort of a uh, steadfast and, and strong connection to what the Word of God teaches, to what the Bible teaches, then our opinion is just that. It's an opinion. So whenever possible, what we want to be able to do is come back to Scripture and say, this is what the good book says. Not merely me. This is what the good book says. Well, the place to begin is first of all, are looking at the fact, at, at God's sovereignty, the fact that He, at any given time, is in control. Amen? Who al say He's on the throne. And that's where I want us to begin today, where in verse 1 of chapter 66, this is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build for me? Where, is, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they've come into being, declares the Lord. 
In other words, the point is, look around you and see that the fact that I have done all these things. And the picture that you see may not fit your scheme and, and the facts on the ground as far as you're concerned. But God calls on the people of Israel here and all of us to look beyond it. And first of all, to begin with the fact that he is the master of the universe. And he's able to carry out his strategy. And you know what? God's strategy often doesn't fit our strategy. It's a funny thing. Uh, God doesn't seem to be too concerned about fitting our linear progression where we're able to say, see, it goes from A to B to C to D to E, etc. And so when it doesn't go from A to B, then we get bent out of shape and we try to figure out all kinds of uh, scenarios and theories to try and shove things as they are into our schematic. But the truth is, God is the God of order. And he operates according to his order, which may not fit our, our linear prediction. And so folks often uh, pull their hair out as they read the prophets. Because the prophets, more often than not, the predictions, more often than not, do not follow a linear progression. And as we look at this chapter, this chapter certainly does not fit a linear progression of how things are supposed to develop. And so rather than try to come up with all kinds of schemes and fit them, we just need to look at Scripture as it is and say, this is what the scriptural facts are and God knows exactly how they're supposed to fit. So I want to be able to do that today. Then, of course, make the application to where we are. Now, what you see here, as you see in most of the prophets, is a pattern of God declaring the sin of the people, then predicting judgment, and yet, you, you look at book after book in, in the prophetic passages of Scripture, and you'll see that despite the sin, despite God's judgment, sometimes it's even harsh, you will see a promise of God's restoration. Why? Because this is who He is. So here, the sins are laid out and I want to look at a couple of categories of them. One is the sins of um, uh, commission, the, the specific transgressions where Israel blew it or Judah blew it. And then the things that are underneath the surface that are not quite so obvious that God, frankly, is more concerned about it. Well, verse 3, um, whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. Well... We know murder is one of the big ten. And by the way, here, of course, God is not putting down the sacrificial system. What he's doing, he is jumping on the folks who go through the motions. Um, in, back in those days, going to the temple, sacrificing, and having absolutely no interest. You know how it is. Um, 
we don't have a temple, we don't have sacrifices, but we certainly can rattle through prayers and our mind is someplace else, you know. Uh, I, I, need, uh, I need vacation and you're rattling through the prayers and I need to get out of here, you're rattling through some more prayers. Of course, you don't do that, it's just me, right? <laughs> we all go through the motions. And so God is blasting the folks who go through the motions, who bring sacrifices and yet kill, and who offer lamb, and yet they break dog's neck. This is pretty grim. Um, one who brings incense, and yet, at the same time, comes to the temple offering pig's blood. Now, just think from a Jewish point of view, uh, how worse can you get than offering pig's blood? So those are, are the things that are easily described. Um, you say those are big sins, you know, capital S. But my conviction is that what God is really after is not those kinds of things, but rather how we feel about God and where he is in our, on our screen, whether he is on, on the screen, whether he is on the stage, whether he is off stage. Look at verse 4, uh, the last part of the verse. When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. In other words, this is God yelling to the people of, of, of Judah, or possibly the people of Israel. We're not quite sure if when this is given. And saying to them, you treat me like I don't exist. Like I, I'm, I'm some sort of a uh, tin horn God. And that's grim. And the Lord then speaks and saying, you guys chose certain things that I consider awful. Well, I'm going to choose certain things that, that you consider awful. Because God's judgment is consequence have to, have to be born. Okay, we've seen this, this kind of a pattern, the sin of Israel, the sin of Judah, other people's sins, God's judgment over and over and over and over again. You read particularly the book of Isaiah and you see this again and again. What is on here is that th there's no pause and almost instantly uh, the prophet takes us then to restoration. And you say, that's weird. You know, I, I get to sin, I get to judgment. Um, why is restoration mentioned so quickly here? Verse 10, rejoice with, Jer with Jerusalem, be glad with her. All you who love her, rejoice greatly with her, all who mourn over her. Because the Lord is very much committed. Option A for God is always redemption, always restoration. God's mercy always trumps his judgment, folks. I don't know what it does for you. It keeps me sane. 
because if I were to list and catalog my particular sins on a given week, um, and no, this is not confession time here. <laughs> you know, you live long enough, and you do, you do stupid things that you say, Lord, you could have nuked me for what I, for what I did. And yet he doesn't. Why? Because that's part of his heart, is to bring about restoration. And, and part of what happens for us, we get high and mighty and righteous, self-righteous, and we look at the rotten world around us, and, uh, and our attitude is, Lord, everything is rotten. Uh, you need to nuke them. Until we step back and realize, uh, you know, if, yeah, them is us. If God were to nuke them, he would nuke us. So, very quickly here we see restoration. And people argue, well, this is restoration that is predicted for the time um, right after the Babylonian exile when God brings the people of Israel back into the land. Uh, I, I see a big panorama here in this chapter. Yeah, you can say it's the restoration from exile, but it's obviously referring to a time that I believe is, is the Messianic kingdom because it speaks about giving Israel peace like a river and the wealth of nations will come flooding like a stream. This is verse 12 and skipping over to verse 23. From one new moon to another, from one, one Shabbat to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me. Well, last time I checked, this clearly hasn't happened. Um, and then, at, at also at the end of the chapter, it speaks about the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, clearly something that's to happen at some point in the future. So you have a big, big panorama here, and uh, we can't break it down and, and, and fit it into our kind of scheme, but basically say, you know, God speaks to Isaiah, and he gives him a telescope, sort of a prophetic telescope, and he looks through it and he sees everything, but he really doesn't understand exactly where, how they fit as far as a time sequence. So considering the fact that this is something that is communicated by God and comes from his heart and his mind, it's okay for us to step back and say, you know, I really don't understand how it all fits. And that's okay. Since I'm not God, I know who's God who isn't. But part of the picture here, and, and here I want to come in for close-ups, part of the picture here is God speaks about vindication. Now that's a word we like because we want, often we want to say, God, everybody is after me. You know, woe is me. Um, God, you have to come and vindicate me and show how awful everybody else is. You ever feel that way? No, okay. <laughs> and the truth, folks, is what we see is God is not interested in vindicating us. He is interested in vindicating what He is doing in us, the good stuff. Do you really want God to vindicate your junk? 
Uh, I think not. And so uh, part of the picture is God is speaking to the remnant. He begins by speaking to the remnant. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Very interesting, uh, very expressive Hebrew word for tremble. Charedim, chared. Hebrew, as you may know, biblical Hebrew is very expressive and has a whole bunch of different words, sort of like Eskimos having a number of words for snow. Hebrew has a number of words for anger. Uh, it has a number of words for fear. And this is one of the words for fear that is very, very strong. It's kind of the sense of if you are um, in a boat and all of a sudden you look up and you see a 40-foot wave coming at you, um, that's the kind of fear we're talking about. It's like you catch, uh, you, you you're, are not able to catch your breath and you say, oh my. And you might be tempted to say words that are not in the Bible, but we won't go there. That's what we're talking about when Scripture speaks about charedah. It has a sense of shaking, trembling. Uh, we see that, for example, um, at the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, the temple quaked and the people quaked because God clearly showed up. And it, all this has to do in Scripture, when it speaks about God, it speaks about God moving powerfully in a way that causes everybody to step back and say, oh my, wow. Now, this is referring to those who tremble at God's word. Now, think about that. When was the last time that you trembled at God's word? You know, I, th I, I, I think f for all of us, reading scripture sometimes or often is in, in the, the category of, okay, Lord, um, I'm having a hard time keeping my eyes open. And furthermore, I really don't understand what it's talking about here. Um, and uh, everything seems to be kind of fuzzy and ill-focused. But this word, chared, charada speaks about the sense that when you read the Word of God, and instead of it being in two dimensions, it pops up in three dimensions or four dimensions and, and, and multicolors, and you go, wow! Because it reveals to you just who God is. And, you know, I, I've been reading Scripture for the better part of half a century, believe it or not. And there are times that I've read Scripture and it just, you know, it, it didn't penetrate the titanium uh, walls here. And so I, I've learned over a period of time to say, Lord, would you please go deep with me and open my eyes because I'm clueless. I want to go deeper with you and really understand what you're saying here. 
what you're saying, period, what you're saying to me because I want to take it and I want to learn it. I want to I embrace it. I want to learn who you are. I want to become more like these guys who have this sense of trembling, not, not because we're afraid that God will do something to us, but trembling in the sense of reading the Word of God and seeing God present Himself to us in living color and standing back and saying, Wow, Lord, this is really who you are. I hope somewhere in you you have that kind of a desire. Verse 5 also speaks about enemies, and we're not going to go there. The truth is, all of us who are committed to a radical, passionate life for God will experience all kinds of pushback. And, and no, they're not paranoid. we're not paranoid because they really are after us. Not, not in a sense of people, but just in a sense of, of a spiritual pushback that we experience when we determine that we're going to pursue God wholeheartedly. Yes, there definitely is, is a pushback. Part of what we see here in this chapter is how God then sees fit to vindicate what he is doing in us. And the more you get to know who God is, you get to know who you are, the more you say, Lord, I don't need to be vindicated. You're the righteous judge where there's junk in me. I don't want that junk vindicated, thank you. I want it exposed, not so that I'm humiliated, but I want it exposed so that I'm able to repent. I'm able to, to turn away from it, like Michael pointed out earlier today. Shuva, to turn. Where there are things that are right on the money that you've been doing in me, I want those vindicated. Because I want to grow more and more in them. And it's really not about us being vindicated, it is about God being vindicated in us. Amen. And part of what happens is that God vindicates us when we're less than perfect, and as we see, He vindicates the nation of Israel despite its sins. Now, part of what boggles my mind is that folks look at the history of the church for the past 2,000 years. And if you're, if you're familiar with church history, you would be absolutely and utterly amazed that God didn't come and nuke the church. Because there were all kinds of things that were done that were abominable. And I'm not going to go through a litany. And so folks are able to whitewash that and then look at Israel and say, Israel sinned, Israel should be pitched into the trash. Well, by that standard, all of us would be pitched into the trash. And the flip side of that is, since God didn't pitch Israel into the trash, we, you and I, and the believers who are 
part of the body of Messiah have good reason to, to believe that God will not do that to us. So you have sin and judgment and vindication taking place and part of what you see here is restoration. And the older I get, the more this truth of God restoring provides a, a very solid plank that I can put my, my feet on. Because what it tells me is that where there is junk and rubbish, God is certainly capable to come and, and bring about cleansing and sweeping. Some of that, of course, depends on our willingness to say, God, uh, here are the keys to this closet where there are bats and spiders and, and uh, all kinds of snakes and different things and demons. You're welcome to come and open it and clean it out um, and then go to other places that are likewise. Please do. Please do because... I want my house to be kadosh, set apart, all about you. Amen. And we know when we have that in mind, when we pray that, when we focus in that direction, we know we are right on the money because God's heart is towards restoration. And yes, there is judgment, but remember that God's mercy trumps judgment. And so when we look at Israel and we focus on the fact that God wants to bring about restoration in Israel, we know that that's his heart. That's consistent all the way from the beginning to the end. And here you have a very interesting, um, odd set of expressions in verse, uh, verse 8, and I'll skip verse 8, verse 10, verse 12. And you can follow along in your Bibles if you would. Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to, to her children. Kind of an odd expression. Um, if you're a mother, you can understand the, the metaphor here. You know, that this is basically in our parlance would be like Caesarean section. Um, and of course, biblically, that kind of Caesarean section w was not around. So the picture simply is that of a miracle, something supernatural. Before, before labor birth, before labor pains come, there is birth. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad for her, all who love her, rejoice greatly with her. You who mourn over her. For this is what the Lord, then verse 12, this is what the Lord says. I will extend her peace like a river and the wealth of nation like a flooding streams. Verse 13, as a mother comforts her children, so I will comfort you. And by the way, so much for the notion that God only speaks in masculine terms. You know? Um, again, remember, God does not whitewash our sins, either Israel's or ours. But he's committed to restoration. And so 
the people who do not understand God's place for Israel, not just in the future, but now, they cannot connect the dots. They believe that any special attention that's given to Israel is out of order. And that Israel happens to be just another name, like, like the Germans and the Chinese and, and et cetera, et cetera. Are they right? Yes and no. God is at work worldwide today. You know, if, if you have seen a set of videos called Transformation, it, it is mind-boggling to see how the power of God has been at work up in Eskimo land in Nunavik. There's been revival, and there's been revival thousands of miles down in, in Fiji. So God has been at work, and Israel is not the only nation that God is working with. That's on one hand. On the other hand, God is certainly working with the nation of Israel. Why? Because there's that special relationship, special covenant relationship. Again, if God's word to Israel doesn't hold true, then neither does his word hold true to any of us. You can say that Israel is God's poster child that tells us that God can be counted on. That's true for Israel. It's true for, for us. It is consistent all the way through Scripture. Amen. You don't have to say, oh, God did something here. Now he's doing something radically different and he might get sick and tired of me like he got sick and tired of Israel. And for us who who get it, who have a heart for Israel, we are encouraged despite the facts on the ground and the facts on the ground for Israel. Some of them are, are pretty difficult. Israel in some ways has been losing the propaganda war because in the beginning of Israel, it was considered to be the, the small nation uh, going scrappy bunch of people going against the the um, majority overwhelming odds and people rooted for Israel at this point it seems like the table have turned tables have turned and people considered Israel to be the bully against the poor Palestinians and so consequently the mindset goes that we need to support the Palestinians and engage in the BDS campaign, BDS being boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And that, to me, seems like such a, an unbiblical perspective. Not that we look at, at, at Israel, the state of Israel, and, and say everything wonderful about the state of Israel. It isn't. Israel is, is a human country, but remember that God is at work. His sovereign plans are at work, and particularly how Israel came about. You know, what, what Isaiah is speaking about is a time when a nation will somehow come together. Folks, that is what happened 
1948. And I want to give you another clip today because I, I believe that will make it very vivid. So if we can have... You look at me as if, as if we're in a different universe. Okay. Let's have the lights. This is the Declaration of the State of Israel by David Ben-Gurion. Hopefully you can see it. ביום שישי, ה' באייר תש"ח, 14 במאי 1948, אחר הצהריים, באו המוזמנים אל בניין מוזיאום תל אביב בשדרות רוטשילד 16. פאזיגאי ישראל. ותוקף זכותנו הטבעית וההיסטורית ועל יסוד החלטת עשרת האומות המוחדות אנו מכריזים בזאת על הקמת מדינה יהודית בארץ ישראל היא מדינת ישראל Okay, thank you. By the way, this went on for 40 minutes, so uh, we're just giving you the quick thumbnail sketch. And by the way, wherein Ben-Gurion speaks about uh, we're doing this on the basis of the power of Israel, the expression he used was Tzur Israel, which is the rock of Israel, which is always, always, always code word for God. So despite the fact that Ben-Gurion and, and most of these guys were secular, uh, they had some kind of understanding that what they were doing was based on, on the prophetic scriptures. Um, and by the way, as you know, as the saying goes, where you have two Jews, you have three opinions. Um, this, this was declared unanimously. Um, and that, by the way, the same night, the Egyptian Air Force bombed Tel Aviv. 
And Israel was outmanned, outgunned. Uh, Jerusalem was encircled uh, in, a, in a death grip by the uh, Arab irregular armies, the Palestinians. Um, and so there was a road that came up from Tel Aviv, from the coast, up to Jerusalem. And there were uh, Palestinian Arab villages on top, and nothing was able to get through to Jerusalem. The city was starving, very grim, and somehow... Somehow, somehow, the God of Israel gave the people of Israel victory. Now, folks, I want to be careful and, and point out that this is not some ethnocentric, jingoistic kind of a thing where we love Israel, we hate everybody else, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, what I mentioned earlier is that our support for the nation of Israel needs to be connected back to the word of God and we have solid grounds in scripture for doing that. The state of Israel is necessary because you have to have a country. If you don't have a state, you don't have the mechanism to govern. And, and, and just a couple of historical facts here. Um, for thousands of years... Jewish people lived in exile. There were, very, there were a few, always a few, that lived in the land, but the, the majority of people had absolutely no interest in coming and, and settling in the land. And you know how it is when things, when you are not moving with God's program, He will turn up the heat, right? You know what I'm saying? You don't get it? Well, uh, we'll work on you. And uh, you still don't get it? We'll work on you some more. Uh, there's no justification for anti-Semitic persecution, but God used that. And I want to mention a couple of people who were instrumental in that. One was uh, Theodore Herzl, who was a totally assimilated um uh, Austro-Hungarian Austro Jew and at one point Herzl believed that the best solution for Jewish people is for us to become assimilated and become part of the European folks and basically go out of existence. That was his solution. And he's covering uh, a trial of a Jewish captain in Paris, Alfred um, Dreyfus, thank you. And he goes out in the streets and he hears the Parisian mobs screaming death to the Jews. And Theodore Herzl got it at that point that Jewish people needed to have a country where we can park. Now, yes, he was totally secular, but remember, folks, that God will use anything and everybody including the, the machinations, the working of Satan. One example of that is we find that Cyrus, the pagan Persian king, is described as the Mashiach, the anointed one by God, in Isaiah 45.1. In other words, God set Cyrus, set him up in order to accomplish his work. And... God used Herzl 
And then in this country, there was a man named William Blackstone, who was an evangelical missionary and evangelist. And somehow God spoke to him, and, and he started to circulate a petition. This is uh, 1891. And he recruited 413 big shots, senators, governors, one of the Supreme Court people uh, to come and, and, and lobby for the United States supporting the cause of Jewish people coming and settling the land of Israel. In fact, Jewish people have called William Blackstone the father of Zionism. So why am I saying all this? Because the facts on the ground were grim. And remember, folks, that true faith often looks ridiculous. When God gives us a word, when God gives us a vision, if it is really from God, it will be impossible for us to accomplish it. If it's something doable, then it's not of God. It's our thing. You know, we sat down and figured something out. By golly, I'm going to get it done. If it's a vision from God, it will be impossible. And so when Blackstone and other believers started to speak about the need to support Israel, support Jewish people coming, lots of people thought that they were nuts. And if God gives you a vision, trust me, you're going to have naysayers, people who will look at you and say, mm, no. So at this point, we have Israel, and Israel is successful, economic, uh, economically successful, technologically. Um, you, you know, I think everybody in here has a cell phone. Where do you think that, that was pioneered? Israel. You've, you use voicemail. Where was that pioneer? Israel. So God's favor has been on the land. But Israel is anything but a godly country, folks. I'm not going to try and whitewash it and tell you that it is a righteous country. It is not. Yes, there, there's a growing believing community. But it is less than 1%. And the, uh, there's the orthodox God-fearers, and they're still a minority. So as far as the facts on the ground, has God finished his work with the nation of Israel? Of course not. So the naysayers will look at us and say, ah, what business do you guys have claiming that Israel, the state of Israel is a fulfillment of God's prophetic passages? Because it's, Clearly not something that, that fits the way we understand the Word of God. Well, let me tell you something. By that definition, and please hear me, by that definition, Yeshua would be considered a false Messiah. Why? Because He has not fulfilled all of the predicted passages in Scripture that speaks about Messiah coming and establishing His kingdom here on the earth. Has he fulfilled his commission? You bet. But the rest of prophecy is not yet done. Certainly not yet done with Israel. So do we stand back and throw stones and say, Israel 
is, is a godless country, therefore, or, or a secular country, therefore, it could not be from God? Also, by that definition, look at us, folks, at all the times when you and I are not on the money, when our behavior does not fit the definition of what a believer is supposed to look like. And, and I think you all know that the stats for horrible dysfunctionality and abuse among believers is basically the same as what you'd find in the world. So can we t- throw stones and say the facts on the ground don't warrant something? No. We simply say it is not complete. God hasn't finished the work yet. God hasn't finished the work yet with Israel. He certainly has not finished the work yet with the body of Messiah, the church. And at least I'll speak for myself. He's not done with me. Thank you, Michael. (laughs) So peace like a river. What peace? Do you know that if you come to Israel... And if you fly with El Al, the Israeli national carrier, you have to allow three hours before check-in. Because they'll check your luggage, they'll check you, they will give you the first and second and third and fourth degree. Because the likelihood of of some crazy nut who wants to put um, explosive... um, in a cell phone is very real. And when you drive through Israel, you really don't want to go into the Palestinian areas unless you really know what you're doing because you may be taking your life into your hands. Peace is not there yet. The facts on the ground are not completely there. But part of what the Word of God calls us to do, calls you and I to do, is to be able to look beneath the facts on the ground and to be able to see what God is doing and recognize the basic fact that He is not done. And be able to affirm the good things that we see and say, God, thank you for those first fruits. And hold them up and say, Lord, this is visible. I can see that. I, I appreciate it. I thank you for what you brought about thus far. And I'm somehow going to trust you for the rest of the harvest. So we celebrate today because the state of Israel is an indicator of what God has been doing. It's an indicator of the fact that He is at work. And it also gives us hope and expectation that He will get the job done in Israel, in the world, and in you and I. Let's pray.
I just want to challenge you today that if you are someone who is, whose existence is based on the facts on the ground, let me exhort you to get new glasses from God. And yes, you need to deal with the facts on the ground. You have to be able to look at what God is doing. And as we are going to be taking some time to worship, as we conclude the service, um, if that's who you are today, let me encourage you to look at the Lord and say, Lord, I need eyes of faith to be able to see what it is that you're doing in my life, in the world, and how I fit, how I fit in this congregation, the part that you have for me to play, the vision that you have for me to play. And take those baby steps of faith to trust God rather than live in the skepticism or cynicism of viewing facts on the ground. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for how you take us with, with our stuff, with our junk, Lord, and, and you... Um, you deal with us in mercy. And thank you, Lord, that you are the righteous judge, that you point out to us our sin, and you gently and lovingly call us, Lord God, to forsake our sin and to be people who tremble at your word. We pray, Lord God, for new vision of who you are and who we are in you. Lord, give us the eyes to be able to see you as you are, Lord. The awesome God that you are, Lord. Give us that sense of awe, Lord. And purge from us, Lord God, the unbelief, Lord, our refusal to trust you for the great things you have in store for us, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that your purposes and your word, Lord God, would go deeper in us, that we would be men and women and young people who are strong in you, Lord, deeply rooted in you, Lord. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.